Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from John 1, 1 through 5, 14 through 18. The word of God speaks to us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Hey, good morning, guys. Y'all can grab a seat. Uh, Well, hey, it's been said already, but I want to say it again. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. It's so fun to, to have you gathering with us today. Uh, If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here, and it's really fun to have family and friends and people join us today that are in town, so thanks so much for being here with us. Hey, I I, I realize that there's a diverse room, and some of us are, are kind of approaching today with a lot of joy and a lot of celebration in our hearts, and we know the story. We know, like, why there's cause for celebration. There's also other people in the room, and if you're honest, you're just like, I'm not really sure what I think about any of this stuff. I don't know what I believe. Uh, or maybe you're like, I, I know that I don't believe. Uh, maybe for you, you have, uh, like many of us do, you've got a history and a past with the church. And instead of that being a place of joy for you and a place of security for you, maybe your relationship to the church has been one where you've been hurt and you, you carry some baggage from that. Uh, or maybe you're just like, in that place where you've experienced enough of life and enough suffering and enough brokenness to have real questions about the character of God. Maybe you're in the place where it's like, yeah, I I really don't know what I believe uh, about God's character because of what's been happening in my life or in the lives of those around me. And I just wanted to say, if that's you today, man, I actually think today's a really helpful day for you because today we're asking the question, what is God like What is God like? And the irony of this is that it doesn't matter who you are, every single person in the room has an opinion on this question. Every person in this room has a thought or an idea, even if you're an atheist, you have an idea of how this God is. So let me just kind of give you some of the major approaches, the major ideas about God. The first one is the atheist answer to the question of what is God like, and it's simply he's not. He doesn't exist. He's, he, he, he's not real. This is something that people made up to just feel better about themselves during the dark dreary, cold winter months. And what I found fascinating is almost every atheist that I know, 
uh, actually has pretty strong opinions about God. Uh, For someone that they don't believe in, they sure dislike him quite a bit, which is sort of ironic. But one, one famous atheist who wrote a book called The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, he summarizes kind of our approach to God as an atheist. He summarizes it this way. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow. Tell us what you really think, Richard Dawkins. It's almost like he looked up all the synonyms for worst person ever and like just threw out every word that he could think of. And I just want to say, like, maybe you wouldn't say it that clearly. Like, maybe you don't hate God that much. Uh, But maybe you would say, I do have some real questions about his character. I've read some stuff in the scriptures or I've experienced some stuff. And I just don't know what I think about who this God really is and if I can trust him. And I would just say to you, if that's you, man, there's a lot of things that I'd want to say. But at least on the surface, just know that Christianity did not become the most diverse, uh, most, most uh, unbelievably like fastest growing religion on planet earth. There's more people from more countries that worship Jesus as Lord. It didn't happen that way because God is, quote, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. We actually believe that there's good news about this God. The, the second approach that people have to who is God is, is, is the spiritual answer. And this is what we see happening time and time again in Oklahoma, where we're going to say, yes, we believe God exists, but in the words of Christian Smith, it's sort of therapeutic, moralistic deism. In other words, we believe that he's out there somewhere, but he doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life here. We believe that he's out there, but he's sort of like a clockmaker that wound up this world and just set it loose, and now here we are doing our own thing. And really, if you boil down kind of the, 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 the main religion, if you will, of Oklahoma, it's that yes, God is real, and he doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life unless I experience a tragedy or something really sad happens. And really, all God wants for me is just to live a moral life, to do the right things. And if I live a moral life, if I do more good things than bad things, then I will go to heaven when I die. If you just put truth serum in most people in Oklahoma, that's what they would probably say. That's what they believe. It's the spiritual answer. The third answer that people give is what I'll just call the secular answer. They answer the question of what is God like with just another question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter, man? My life is fine. My life is good. I have a job. I have a steady flow of income. I've got a coffee shop that I can go to. I've got my favorite restaurants. If things get really hard or I get overwhelmed, I can just go see a counselor or a therapist or I can go uh, on a vacation or I can do this or that. Like, my life is fine. I don't have any real need for God. You know, you hear people say, you have a God-shaped hole in your life. and, And the secular response would be, I don't really feel like I do. I'm doing just fine. Why do I need God anyway? And then finally, the fourth answer that people give is the Christian answer. The Christian answer is different than all of these answers because what we're saying is that actually the the greatest way to understand what God is like is actually found in what we're celebrating at Christmas. It's found in the incarnation. Now, there's a lot of things that Christians would say about God 
But there's nothing that we could say about God that is as profound as what we're saying during Christmas. In fact, if you've been with us the last four weeks, we've, lit, we've been lighting these candles of Advent, kind of this, the season leading up to Christmas, and, and these candles represent joy and hope and peace and love. And what Christians are saying is that we are banking all of our joy and our hope and peace for us in the world and love itself on the claim of what we're going to call the incarnation, God in Christ coming to this world. In fact, today, we're going to light the Christ candle before we go that's showing that even in the middle of our darkness that God has entered human history. Now, now let me just pause here. The problem with that claim is that it's become so sterilized and so sentimentalized and so cute that often when you and I think of Christmas, it's something like this that comes to mind. This image is what we kind of think of when we think of Christmas. And I just want to say that this image is cute and it's sentimental, but it has nothing weighty or helpful for you on the dark day. There's nothing about this that's like, wow, that's really compelling. I want to give my life to that. This is just sort of like sweet and gives me warm fuzzies, but there's nothing significant for me to bank on with this idea of God becoming a baby. It just sounds super Blah, right? There's nothing here for us. In fact, I, I talked about this, this uh, last year. I heard this song for the first time by Phoebe Bridgers, who's one of my favorite artists. If you like really sad, really depressing music, you would really like Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, she's, she's what I would call a haunted atheist. So she doesn't believe in God, but she's sort of haunted by the fact that uh, she misses God, if you know what I mean. She's haunted by what if God actually is real. And she, she wrote this Christmas album that is the most depressing Christmas album ever. If, if you're into that sort of thing, you'd love her album. And on that album, she has a song, Silent Night, which is her singing in a really beautiful way the traditional lyrics of Silent Night. She's singing Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright, Round Yon Virgin, Mother and Child, Holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. She's singing that, but in the background, the seven o'clock news is playing. In the background, the seven o'clock news is playing, and it's full of violence and murder and abuse and scandal and political upheaval. And she's singing the song, and it's sort of kind of a tongue-in-cheek way for her as this haunted atheist to say, here's this baby sleeping in heavenly peace while the world is going to hell in a handbasket. So much for the claim of Christianity that says that God came to do anything about this. He's just laying in a manger somewhere, quietly sleeping, while the world is on fire burning to the ground. And I just want to say that's what's happened in our culture with this very idea of God coming into human history. So what I want to do today is I want to just ask the question like, is there actually anything that you can bank on here? When you think about the birth of Jesus, is there anything worth staking your hope on here? Is there anything worth giving your life to? And we want to say as Christians, we absolutely think that there is. And I don't know of a better place to go than John chapter 1 as we consider this question of what is God like. So let me read it to you. John 1, we'll have the words up on the screen. Here's what it says in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word in, in, in Greek philosophy was sort of like this, this 
uh, force, this unseen hidden force that they hoped was benevolent but was behind all things. This is what uh, people who were Greeks thought 2,000 years ago. In the beginning was the Word, but then John twists it and he says, and the Word was with God and, notice, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him, this word, was life, and the life was the light of men, which is why we still, 2,000 years later, are lighting candles. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 18, it says this. It says, no one has ever seen God. You can't see God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that word, he has made him known. Now, I love this. The word for word in Greek is logos, and it's where we get our word for logo, right? In fact, the, 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 the idea of a logo is how a company represents itself to the world. It's how if you as a business or an organization or a company or whatever, you want to market yourself, you want to let people know who you are, well, then you create a logo to display to the world, here's who we are. And, and what's fascinating is that John is saying that Jesus is God's very expression to the world. It's, it, Jesus is actually the word that is revealing to us, that's showing us sort of the logo, if you will, of what is God like? You, you, you want to know what God is like? You want to know what he loves, what he hates, what makes him tick? If you want to know everything there is to know about God, look at Jesus and you will know what God is like. And, and he goes on and he says something absolutely mind-blowing in verse 14. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, and the word, this, this, this isn't a benevolent force that created everything. It's a person. Behind all things stands a person. But notice what this person does. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What is God like? The first thing I want you to see is that he is a God who is absolutely overflowing with sympathy. He is a God full of sympathy. I love this line in John. It says, and the word became flesh. And here's what I want you to, to realize, is that the very medium with which God chooses to reveal himself into this world by is inherently how we should even understand the message itself. The medium is the message. The fact that God, who is the creator of all things, the one who has existed for all time, the fact that this God did not show up on planet earth with pomp and circumstance and trumpet blasts and fanfare and coming down on a blazing cloud of glory, the fact that this God actually chose to, according to John chapter 1, become flesh tells us almost everything that you need to know about God. That God did not choose to, to enter human history and stand far away from us. He didn't choose to enter human history and remain all-powerful and all-knowing and all these things and, and only relate to us in that fashion. But actually what Christianity claims is that this God, if you can wrap your head around it, entered into the brokenness of our world. He entered into the muck of our world. He entered into the darkness and he did so not as this invincible, all-powerful God, but he did so by becoming a human child. 
And what that means is that Jesus has the profound ability to understand you at every level, not just because he's God, but he can understand you because the claim of Christmas is that he became one of you. He actually took on human flesh. He didn't come into a sanitized or perfectly curated world. He came into the mess as one of us. I just want you to let the humanity of Jesus sink in. It doesn't mean that he ceased to be God, but as the church fathers were really fond of saying, remaining what he was for the very first time, he became what he was not. That God didn't just dress up in a skin suit and walk around looking like one of us, pretending to be one of us. Christmas is the claim that God became human. And I've read this, I've I've been preaching Christmas Eve sermons for 15 years now, and I, I think I've read this quote from Max Lucado every single year because I can't get away from it. Here's what he says. He says, the omnipotent and in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who is larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with the word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. Think about this. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. Friends, God chose to enter human history through a birth canal. God learned to crawl. God learned to walk. God, at one point in his life, fell and hit his head. God learned how to uh, navigate the complexities of puberty. God's voice changed, right? Like all these bizarre... God, at one point in his life, probably had the stomach bug. He became one of us, not to pretend to be one of us. He became fully human. That's the claim of Christmas. Just listen to how the Bible describes the humanity of Jesus. It says that Jesus felt compassion and that he was angry and indignant and consumed with zeal. It says that he was troubled and greatly distressed and very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved and grieved. We read in scripture that Jesus sighed and that he wept and that he sobbed and he groaned and he was in agony. We read that he was surprised and amazed, that he rejoiced very greatly and was full of joy, greatly desired. We read, quote, that he loved. Jesus was, quote, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he even weeps when he sees his friend Lazarus die, which is shocking because he's about to raise him from the dead, and that doesn't surprise us, but what surprises us is that when confronted with death itself, it moves the heart of God to the point of weeping. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as Isaiah said. He was mocked by people that didn't know him. He was misunderstood by his own family. They thought he was crazy. He was betrayed with a kiss from one who was closest to him. He was denied three separate times by one of his best friends and was physically there to see it and hear the whole interaction. And he ultimately felt the emotions of becoming the forsaken one on the cross and suffering a horrible death. And friends, what that means is that there is nothing, there is nothing that you are experiencing in this room today that is outside of his scope to look at you and have compassion in his heart well up for you. He became one of us to understand us. Friends, this is good news because I know that in this room, 
There's not just the joy of Christmas. There's not just the fact that tomorrow morning your kids are going to wake you up at an ungodly hour and want to do things that you're just like, if I could only get two more hours of sleep. It's not just the excitement of, of gift exchange and I hope I get that one thing that I've been you know, begging to get or whatever. All of those things are real. All of those things are fun. But in this room, we have bad doctor's diagnoses. We have uh, marriages that are on the brink of utterly falling apart. We have people who are just wondering, like, man, I don't know if I can keep going financially. Things are so tight. Things are so stretched. I don't know how we're going to survive as we head into 2024. You've got all kinds of complexity and sorrow and addictions and issues and problems. It's in my heart and it's in your heart. And I don't know what all you're carrying, but I know that today, if Christmas means anything, it means that God is standing in front of you actually with tears in his eyes, with the ability to sympathize and understand because he's been there, friends. He's been there. That's good news, isn't it? That's the good news of Christmas, that God entered our darkness, entered our brokenness to understand and to sympathize. But in addition to that, there's another thing I want you to see. He doesn't just arrive on the scene to look us in the eyes and sympathize with us. That's all well and good, but it only gets us so far. Have you ever had a friend in your life that they could sympathize with you perfectly, but they can't do anything about it? Well, actually, Christmas is telling us a second thing, that he's not just full of sympathy, but this God is also full of salvation. Now, let, let me just tell you what I think of when I often think of salvation. I grew up in church, like many of you, and uh, growing up in church, my idea of salvation was that it basically meant that I was saved, and to be saved meant that I've asked Jesus into my heart, and that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I believe that Jesus died on a cross for me, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. That's what I thought salvation meant. Now, that's, that's a part of what you might call salvation, but salvation is like capital S, salvation, and means so much more than just having Jesus in your heart and going to heaven when you die. John's going to tell us something about why Jesus entered into human history in the first place. Notice verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh, and what? He dwelt among us. Now, we just kind of read that, and we're like, cool, he came to dwell among us. But if you were reading this as an original reader, as a, as a Greek person or a Jewish person 2,000 years ago, your jaw would have been on the floor, especially if you're Jewish, because this word here isn't dwell among us. In the original language, it's literally, he came to tabernacle among us. And if you're a Jewish person in the first century, the tabernacle is going to start ringing all these bells for you. The tabernacle for the people of Israel was this, this place where God's very presence dwelled. Yes, he's everywhere. He, he's the one who created all things, and the highest of highest of heavens can't contain his presence. But the tabernacle, in a unique way, was where God was. If you wanted to meet God, go to the tabernacle. If you want to encounter God, go to the tabernacle. It was also the place where sacrifices for sins were made, where people were pronounced forgiven. I mean, the tabernacle is a big deal, but even more than that, God actually created the whole earth originally to be like a tabernacle, to be like a cosmic temple, if you will, a, a dwelling place for God and his presence and for us. In fact, in the beginning, heaven and earth were not separate spaces where heaven was where God lived and the earth was where we lived, but actually in the beginning, heaven and earth overlapped and the Garden of Eden was sort of like this 
tabernacle, if you will, where you and I were intended to live in the very presence of God in a world free of sin and sorrow and shame and guilt, and actually to experience a level of peace that our English word for peace can't even capture, where everything is right, where everything is as it should be, where, where sorrows and sadness don't even exist, where every relationship that you have, both with God and with other people, are full of the, the, the fullest level of peace and of joy. This was the world that you and I were meant to experience. But friends, you know the story. If you know what scripture teaches, it's that Adam and Eve rejected God. They rebelled against God. They chose to not have God be God, but they wanted to be their own God, and they wanted to find good and evil for themselves. So when they chose to do that, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that heaven and earth are ripped into, that Adam and Eve are exiled out of the garden. They're sent out of the garden. And it's sort of like the picture you get is that God takes his tent, his tabernacle, if you will, and he packs it up and he goes away. And here we are on this earth without the presence of God. And ever since, what humanity has been trying to do is sort of recreate heaven on earth, but without God. So we're going to build beautiful cities, and we're going to have progress, and we're going to do technology as best as we can, and we're going to try to overcome all of our obstacles and our issues and our problems, and we don't need God. It's sort of like we posted a keep God out sign in our hearts and in our minds, and we're just doing our thing, hoping that we can bring heaven back to earth, but without God. And friends, we know this, it just doesn't work. It's not worked for us. No matter how much progress is made, no matter how much technology advances, no matter how much money you make, no matter how many things you achieve in your life, no matter how good your relationship is with your spouse or your kids or your friends or whatever, there's still something that's off in our lives because we are missing the very presence of God. In fact, J.R.R. Tolkien, the famous author of Lord of the Rings, he, uh, he says it this way. He says, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth, and we all long for it. We're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane is still soaked with a sense of exile. And if you have ever late at night been thinking about or laying in bed and pondering like, there must be more than this. I've done everything that the American dream told me to do and I'm not okay. There must be more to this. If you've ever asked that question, there is, and John is saying it right here. Again, look at it. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If Christmas is telling us anything, it's telling us that God did not just come down to sympathize with us as a human, but he also came to bring us salvation and his very presence back to this earth. That he came to tabernacle with us again, to restore us to his presence and his presence to this earth. World, And this is why we sing songs like Joy to the World, which, by the way, was not actually a song written about the first coming of Jesus, but because he entered into human history, there's a promise that he's going to return to this earth, and when he returns to this earth, Revelation 21 says that he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's going to actually undo everything that's sinful and wrong and broken about our world, and Joy to the World was written about that coming of Jesus. Joy to the world, let earth receive her king, right? No more let sins and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? 
as far as the curse is found. This is why we sing joy to the world, because he came once to die for our sins, and then he came again, he's coming again to actually fully redeem and restore all of our lives and this world. And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see, which is who, who are the types of people that he does this for? So he comes to sympathize and he comes to bring salvation, capital S, salvation. Who are the types of people that this God is drawn to? Who are the types of people that he does this for? Well, the third and final thing I want you to see is that he's also a God full of grace. Look at verse 16. It says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you see Moses coming down from the mountain, and he has the law in his hands. And if you don't know anything about the law, the law was essentially like, here's God's heart behind what he wants you to do and not do. And and the struggle there is that you and I and the people of Israel are really good at not doing what we're supposed to do, and really good at, at doing the things that God is explicitly asking us not to do. And if the law was doing anything for the people of Israel, it wasn't providing them with more grace or more hope or more peace. If anything, the law was constantly a reminder of, oh, you failed again, you failed again, you sinned again, you messed up again, you cannot get this thing right. And every time under this old covenant, every time that you would sin and do something wrong, every time the law pointed out a flaw, you would have to go to the tabernacle or the temple, you'd have to bring an animal sacrifice, you'd have to talk to the priest and say, I'm sorry, I did this again. The priest would kill the animal sacrifice and then say, you're forgiven, go on your way, don't sin anymore. And then you'd be back on Monday and back on Tuesday and back on Wednesday. And And this whole system was set up to just remind the people, you are really busted. You are really broken. You are really messed up. You are really far from God. And yet, and yet what Christmas is telling us is that Jesus shows up. And when he shows up on the scene, he does not bring more law. But instead, what he has in his arms is grace upon grace upon grace. And what Jesus does for us is come from heaven to earth, not to point out all of our failures and flaws and sins, but actually to live perfectly on our behalf, to die in our place for our sins as the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we talk about the Lamb of God, because he was the ultimate sacrifice in our place for our sins, and then to rise again so that you and I could be forgiven and restored back to God. In Christianity, you don't climb a ladder to get to God. The whole claim is that God climbed down the ladder to get to you and I and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So I just want to say if you're full of brokenness today, full of sin today, full of like an awareness of your failures and your flaws and all the things that are not as they should be, you are exactly the type of person that the heart of God is drawn to with love and with compassion, and he's offering you grace today. And in addition to that, he's offering you truth today. He says, John says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, and I think this idea of truth coming to us in the end of 2023, headed into 2024, and another election year where you and I very well know that Not every news cycle is giving us the honest picture. And often you hear things and you're like, I don't know if I should believe that or, well, that's your angle or that's your spin. 
We live in a world full of spin and fake news and things that are just untruths. And now, like, think about the existence of AI. I saw a video the other day of a coach giving a speech, and it was 100% fabricated by AI. Looked like the guy, sounded like the guy, wasn't really the guy. So now, not, not only can you not trust news cycles, you can't trust video and photo anymore. And it's sort of kind of leaving us with this feeling of, who can I trust? What's real? Can someone come and bring me truth? And the claim of Christmas is that Jesus came to bring you grace and truth. He tells us the truth about your beauty and your value as a human being, your truth about what you've done in sin to reject God. He's going to tell you the truth about how broken you really are, He's going to tell us the truth about his judgment against our sin, that there is coming a day of judgment where he will judge evildoers for what they have done, but he's also telling us about the truth of our need for a Savior and that Jesus came down the ladder of heaven to this earth as a breakable baby to ultimately be broken on a cross for you and for me. And that leaves you with two options. You either reject him, or you receive him. John says this in verse 10. He says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, notice the tragedy, the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Today, Jesus is coming to you, and he's coming with grace, and he's coming with truth, and he's offering both of those to you. And the option on the table is, will you reject him or will you receive him? Notice what John says in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what does he do? He gave the right to become children of God. Today, if you place your hope in Jesus, if you place your faith in Jesus, if you turn from your old way of life and turn to Jesus as the one that you're looking to for significance and identity, what Jesus does is that he doesn't just forgive you, but he brings you into his family and adopts you into the family of God. You become a son or daughter of God the Father, and he gives you a completely new identity and a completely new life. Friends, this is why Christians exchange gifts at Christmas. This is why we light candles. This is why we string lights on our house. This is why we do what we do, because we're celebrating that God has come near to forgive us, to rescue us, and restore this broken world. I want to invite you. Would you stand with me today? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we're asking you, we're begging you to come to Jesus today, to receive him today, to not just hear this and assume that you believe it. Maybe you've heard this your whole life, but like your life is not oriented around this reality. And I would just challenge that. Like maybe you don't actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is if you have not oriented your entire existence around this reality. Today, if that's you, you're not a follower of Jesus, man, don't leave today without grabbing one of our leaders. We're going to have men and women down front when we go today, and as you're sent, you can actually come up here, and we would love to pray for you or answer questions that you have or set up a time in the next uh, upcoming weeks to just process the claims of Christianity with you. Sound good? We're asking you to receive Jesus as Lord, but today, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room and you're banking your hope on the fact that God became a baby to live for you... Ultimately, he came to die on a cross for you, to suffer and bleed under the weight of your sin and the justice of God for those sins, 
so that instead you and I could experience love and forgiveness and mercy. And today we get to drink the cup of God's salvation. His blood was poured out so that you and I could actually experience his forgiving grace. His blood was poured out as he drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of God's love. So here's what we're gonna offer you to do today as followers of Jesus is come and receive the bread or the juice or the wine. We've got juice or wine based on your conscience. Come and receive the bread and the cup and go back to your seats. We're gonna take this all together today as a church. Sound good? So grab it together, go, and then we're gonna hold these as we sing. We're gonna take it together before we send you out. You guys are invited as followers of Jesus to come receive the body and receive the blood of Jesus.